And I wanna encourage you to think through with me some things related to the resurrection. But, but first, here's the story, Matthew chapter 28. If you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew 28. And then after that, we're gonna be in 1 Corinthians 15. But Matthew 28 this morning, to begin, let's hear the story as it was recounted by Matthew, Levi, the tax collector, one of the apostles of Jesus. Matthew chapter 28, verse one. Now after Shabbat, as it began to dawn toward the first of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here for he has risen just as he said Come see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going ahead of you into Galilee and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. I love what the angel says in verse six. He says, come see the place where he was lying. I, I get the sense that maybe the women were just barely into the tomb where the angel's saying, now, now go, go. Come on, we got stuff to do here. Don't dawdle in the tomb. Don't stay in the place of the dead. He's not in the place of the dead. He is alive He's living, go tell the others. You get this sense of urgency, go quickly. And verse eight says, they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And they hadn't even seen him yet, but they were filled with this amazing joy, this great joy, the Bible tells us. Father, I pray that you'd allow us to experience that great joy. Lord, that it would be a great joy that, that truly defines our lives. That we are not a people of great fear. We are not a people of great worry. We are not a people of great anxiety. We are not a people of great depression or great sorrow or great paranoia or any of these things. No, Lord, we are a people of great joy because the story is true. Because this happened. And remarkably, it continues to happen in people's lives as they come alive to the truth of Jesus. Lord, in your word, you say, come, let us reason together. And so we want to do that this morning. But my prayer is our reasoning would yield great joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me start by saying happy Easter. Some of you won't say that. I know this because I know in the church and I know among some Christians, the word Easter is just, let's not say Easter. I mean, that has to come from the pagan goddess Ishtar, right? And her golden egg of Astarte and the rites of spring and all of that, that all that pagan stuff. So we don't say happy Easter, we say happy resurrection day, but avoid the word Easter. Well, let me help you with that because I know it does bother some people. Let's get this out of the way real quickly. Only two languages in the world have two separate words for Passover and Easter. Did you know that? In most languages, it's the same word that is used, the word Pesach in the Hebrew. In the Greek, Pascha. If you were speaking French, you'd say Pake. 
If you're saying Italian, you'd say Pasqua. If you're Dutch, you'd say Passen. And these are all the same word that they don't have another word for Easter. They don't say Easter. If you were Dutch, you would say uh, Passen or Passen. I'm not even sure because I'm not Dutch. Some of you could help me with that, I'm sure. But it's the same word. The word is, is Passover in the Hebrew, and that's the only word most languages use to describe. It's either Passover or Easter. They just use that same exact word. Technically, technically speaking, Passover does not speak of Easter. Passover speaks of crucifixion. Passover speaks of the sacrifice, the lamb sacrifice, the lamb that was slain, Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain. And so he was slain on Passover. Passover is the crucifixion, and yet that's the word that most languages will use to speak of Easter, even though it's really about the crucifixion. The reality is, if you want to stay with the Hebrew, the resurrection took place on Reshit. So happy Reshit. Reshit, which is first fruits. So amazing. Well, it shouldn't be. God set the whole thing up that the resurrection of Jesus occurred on the morning of the celebration of first fruits. The first fruits, reshit in the Hebrew. But in English, we have Passover and Easter. And again, people get uncomfortable with Easter because they're like, does it come from, you know, Ishtar? Well, there's only one other language that has two words for this time of year celebration, and that's German. And in the German, there is the word Passa, which is Passover. And then they have another word that speaks of what we would call Easter, or some would say, no, no, Resurrection Day. Well, the German word is Oster, or Oster. Oster in the German, which means the rising of the sun. It means the first to stand. Oster comes from Ost, which is East in German. Oster, Easter, that's where the word comes from. It doesn't come from Ishtar. And if someone comes up to you and says, happy Ishtar, you frown and walk away. <laughs> I'm not celebrating anything pagan today. I'm celebrating the rising of the sun, S-O-N, which happened at the rising of the sun on that first Oster when Jesus was the first to stand. Ezekiel 43, verse two tells us the glory of God was coming from the way of the east, or a German would say, coming from the way of the ost. That's where Jesus will return from. That's where Messiah, it is prophesied, is gonna come. He's gonna come from the way of the east. Ezekiel goes on to say his voice was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. So this morning, whether you call it Pake, Pasqua, Passan, Pasach, Passover, if you want to call it first fruits, go right ahead, feel free, call it Resurrection Sunday, or just say Happy Easter. But the point is, it's all good news. It is all good news. What started out is good news of great joy. Remember the angel said that. Good news, I bring you good news of great joy. And I want to think through the good news. 2,032 years ago, a birthday card was written, it written and it was actually inscribed. It still exists to this day. It's called the, it's called the Pre-In Inscription. Pre-In from the city of the same name in ancient Turkey, in what was not Turkey at the time, but in the ancient world, in Turkey today, Pre-In, you can visit Pre-In in the world today if you wanna to go to Turkey and, and, and check it out. But this inscription, the Pre-In Inscription was written in 9 B.C., and again, we still have it. It's a birthday greeting to Augustus Caesar. 
the pre-in inscription. Now it drones on and on. I have the whole thing in here and I took it out because I'm like, I don't wanna waste time on that. But let me give you one line that I think encapsulates the entirety of this birthday card for Caesar. It reads, the birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings of the world. The word good tidings there is euangelion, where we get our word evangelism. Euangelion, it's, it's the word gospel. The euangelion, the gospel. And, and, and whoever carved this thing to the God Augustus, who was this person carved the beginning of the gospel for the world. <laughs> no, 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 no. Mark, in his gospel, counters the pre-in inscription. I think intentionally, I can't prove it, but Mark chapter one, verse one says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. That's the gospel. Luke wrote that while Caesar Augustus was sitting on his throne, perhaps eating cake in Rome, Luke chapter two, verse 10 says, an angel said to the shepherds, do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Great joy in the Greek literally translates mega gladness. Good news of mega gladness. This is a big deal. This is the heart of our joy in the world today. Matthew chapter 11, verse five. Jesus, when asked by John the Baptist, by some messengers of his, are, are, you, are you the one? Because John was in prison, he was having some doubts, he was struggling, and Jesus said, blind receive sight, lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf ear, dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. The good news is out. The Hebrew word for that same word, gospel, the Hebrew is basiru, which means a message of joy or good tidings. Psalm 96 verse two uses the word, sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. The gospel is good news. Good news of mega joy. And you know what? It is the only message of hope. It's the only one in this world. You're not gonna find it on Fox News. You're not gonna find the message of hope on CNN. Good luck finding it on MSNBC or any of the other bizarre outlets. And there are all kinds of news sources. It's really funny to me because now, ever since COVID, there's all kinds of news out there. The alternative news media has really taken over and people are like, have you seen this? Have you read this? I'm really upset about this. I'm kind of stressed. And I'm like, good news. Good news. And that is not to be blind to the difficulties in our world, but to recognize we have the greatest hope, the only hope, and it is our hope in Jesus Christ. Jesus launched his ministry on this good news. He quoted Isaiah 61 from a synagogue in Nazareth when he said in Luke chapter four, verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. You know who the poor is? It is all of us in this world. This is a poor, lost world. And we know this, that no amount of riches brings a mega gladness. There is a poverty of spirit in the world today, and Jesus said, I came to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus reads that out of the scroll of Isaiah, rolls it up, hands it back to attendant, the attendant and sits down. 
and every eye was on him. And he said, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Good news. Good news of mega joy. The gospel remains the only message in the world today that is completely, consistently, and continually good. So if you're having a hard day, read the gospel. If you're struggling a little, back, a little bit, go back to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. There's all kinds of bad news. You can pick it up anytime you want. I gotta say something else, and this is bad before we get back to the good news. Because again, I wanna reason this through, hopefully a reasoning that will result in great joy. There are problems in the world. And the biggest problem in our world today, just hear me for a moment, is not the Trump indictment. It's not the biggest problem. Nor is it the Tennessee ouster of Dem Democrats in the House there in, in Tennessee. It's not inflation. It's not gas prices. It's not tax audits. It's not Bud Light or, or Nike, though I'm not supporting them anymore. It, 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 it's not even nuclear threats from Tehran or North Korea or sanctions by the CCP or the Russian-Ukraine war. These are all bad things. But the biggest problem today in the world is the same problem that got Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden, it's sin. Sin is the issue. Sin is the problem. I know it's not a popular word. I, I actually sat and thought about it. Do I want to use the word this morning? Now, if you go to the bridge, you know I'm, I'm not shy about using you know, whatever words are in the scriptures. And I'm not shy about saying, if we need to deal with sin, let's deal with sin. Let's talk about sin. But the world doesn't like the word sin. People prefer, and you know, a lot of times even in churches, prefer words like, well, don't think sin, think mistake. I said on Friday night, sin is not a mistake. And a mistake is not sin. These are two different words. Sin is not a blunder or a slip up or a goof. <laughs> you know, goofed, <laughs> whatever, not a big deal. Sin is endemic to human existence. Sin is the problem that has dogged mankind from day one and still does today. And sin is not just that which is forbidden. Oh yeah, yeah, that's what you Christians say is sin is God forbidding people from having any kind of fun, wrong. Sin is not forbidden pleasure and sin is not manageable evil. Well, I know it's dark, I know it's bad, but I can handle it. No, you can't. Sin is absolutely voracious, it never stops. It never stops. Sin is not accidental. Genesis chapter four, verse seven. The Lord comes to Cain, who is angry with his brother, murderously angry, and the Lord intervenes and says to him, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. You must master it. So right down, right there, the Lord lays down the gauntlet. You must master it. And from that point forward, you know, Cain goes ahead and murders Abel. And we recognize we can't master this thing. This thing has had mastery over us, has mastery over the world. James chapter one, verse 14, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then 
When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Listen to this. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That's it. That is the end game of sin. Always, little sin, big sin makes no difference. If sin is allowed to run its course, it will end in death. That's what sin does. That's why there's death in the world today. The end result, think of it this way. The end result of sin is humanity's greatest sorrow. If there's any one thing I would prefer not to do, it's go to a funeral. Would you agree with me on that? There are an awful lot of difficult things we have to face in this world, but facing death, death of a loved one, death of a spouse, death of a friend who's precious to you, none of us enjoy that. No one looks forward to that. No one wants to go through it. We do everything we can to avoid death. But that's where sin is headed. And it results in that incredible sorrow. Sin, it results in fear and anxiety and despair and confusion. Sin deals in despair, delivers mistrust. Sin breaks relationships. Sin ruins lives. And worst of all, sin separates us from the only one who can offer us hope. Sin separates from God. Now the word in the Bible for sin is hamartano, and hamartano can be translated trespass. It can be translated offense or wrongdoing. It can also mean, and you've probably heard this, if, if, if you've heard any teaching on sin, it means miss the mark. But let me clarify. It's not like you have this big target and a bow and arrow and you take a shot and you hit the outside of the target or you hit a third of the way in or you hit near the center. Sin is you don't hit it at all. It's completely missing the mark. And even if you were to hit the target, unless you hit the bullseye so spot on that it is perfectly centered, you have missed the mark. That's the concept of sin. It's a mark that is almost impossible to hit. Well, I could shoot an arrow and, and I could get a bullseye from a thousand feet away. Sin is missing the mark, but sin is something else. Not only is it not being good enough, because good enough doesn't count with good and evil. There's not good enough. There's no such thing as good enough. There's either perfectly good or there's evil. And if you're not perfectly good, you've missed the mark. You've sinned. I'm not trying to bring you down, but maybe we need to go down before we go up. Sin is missing the mark because close isn't good enough, but sin is also, hamartano, this word is also translated not having a share in. That you no longer have a share in that which is good. You don't have a share in what God wants for you, what he desires for you and for me. You've lost out. You don't have an inheritance. You don't have a future. You don't have a hope. That's sin. And sin dogs us in life. So, so God comes along and he does the most radical thing that could possibly be done. The creator of all the universe put on flesh to die in our place on a cruel Roman cross. God's answer to sin, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So for this Oster, this rising of the sun, this Easter morning, I wanna unpack a few verses from what I think is one of the most consequential chapters in the entire Bible. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
For here Paul begins to reason, and we're not gonna do all of chapter 15, we don't have time this morning, but I encourage you to read through all of it, it'll blow your minds, it's one of the best teachings on resurrection in the Bible. And Paul lays it out here, we're gonna cover the first few verses to, to reason this thing called resurrection. You see, Paul was in the Greek world, Paul was missionary all around, he wrote this to Corinth, a very Greek city, a city that he went to after, you may recall, he was in Athens. Acts chapter 17 tells us on his missionary journeys, Paul went to Athens. And as he was in Athens, he begins to talk about the resurrection from the dead. And he was laughed out of Athens. Now you need to understand, it was no different then than it would be now. If you're trying to convince someone who's never heard the story, never believed in all this stuff, or even someone who's heard something about Jesus, I can believe in Jesus, good teacher, great guy, maybe even did some miracles, but rose from the dead, come on. Nobody rises from the dead. Well, that's what they thought. And so in Athens, Paul gets laughed out of the place, he makes his way down to Corinth, and he decides, I'm just gonna talk about the cross. The cross and the resurrection, the cross and the resurrection, I'm gonna focus on that, the gospel. And so Paul does that. And now he's writing to that same church in Corinth to encourage the people and to explain something, to reason with them, because these are Greeks, and Greeks like wisdom. And the Greek people wanted, wanted understanding and knowledge. Explain this to me. So that's what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse one. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul starts off this amazing section by saying the message is good news. Remember what I told you, I told you good news the good news, what Paul calls the gospel. He says, the good news is the message, note this, number one, which you received. He says to the church at Corinth, you received it. Remember when I was there, I gave it to you and you received it. You picked up the mail. You opened up the card. You looked inside. But did you receive it? This is a problem right here. People hearing the story of the resurrection, looking at the card, maybe not a stone inscription like to Caesar Augustus, but you open the birthday card, you open the card of good news, and you take a look. Don't set it aside. Don't toss it back on the stack. If you received it, keep it with you. This is the message of good news. This is our hope. Maybe you're like me, you get the birthday card and the first thing you do is shake it to see if there's a check inside. And if there's not, you go, well, thanks, Hallmark, and because, you, you know, it's a sentiment, whatever. You can still send me cards. <laughs> I'll read them. But that's what so many people will do with the gospel. They'll open up the message, read the good news, and go, oh, no check? Okay, I heard there was a check. I thought there was gonna be a check. And you set this, the card aside. Paul says, you received it, and he uses that word, that word that we love here at the bridge, paralambano. That Greek word that means to receive to yourself or to take along with you. Remember, we've talked about this recently. It's a favorite word of Jesus who said there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, that is taken along with, and one will be left. 
He says in John 14, three, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself. I'm gonna take you to myself. That where I am, there you may also be. If you've received the gospel, Paul says, you received it. I gave it, I spoke it, you received it. Don't set it aside. Jesus has you. If you've received the gospel, he's got you. He has you. He will take you along. Now, he's not gonna force anyone to go. If you don't want the gospel, if you reject the gospel, if you say, I don't wanna receive that, he's not gonna force you. But Paul reminds the people at Corinth, this was something I preached to you, which you received. You took it. So continue to take it. He, he says then, not only which you also received, he says, in which you also stand. You received it, and now you stand on it. Again, it's not something set aside. The gospel is that on which you stand. In other words, it's solid. It is solid. It's stable ground. It's not wobbly. It's not uncertain. Honestly, it's not even something that needs to be defended because it's true. It's just true. The gospel is rock solid. You know, you've heard the phrase, that's the gospel truth. What does that mean? It means it's unbreakable. It means it's perfect. It means once spoken that it is absolute. Yes, we live in a culture that rejects absolutes. The gospel is absolute. You can stand on the truth of this word as Paul is setting the thing up, as he's beginning to reason. He's saying, you stand on this. This is absolute truth. That phrase, by the way, the gospel truth was coined around the 1300s and we still use it today, and ever since it was coined, it was spoken to mean something that was absolute. It's gospel truth. Then you knew it was absolutely true. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, with full assurance. You can be assured this is true. Now, even in hearing that, there are some who might say, well, I know you believe it's true. I'm not sure that I'm convinced. I, I don't know if I'm assured yet that this thing is true. Well, I'm just telling you before we even get there, it is. And this is what Paul is saying. You can stand on it, it's absolute. It's not gonna break on you. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. Paul is making a case. You can believe this. You can trust this. You can be assured of this. He says, this gospel, which you received, in which also you stand, thirdly, by which also you are saved. By which you are saved. And Les is gonna love this because it's literally by which you are being saved. It's present tense and it's ongoing action. Okay, it is the gospel, I'm saved. The moment I gave my life to Jesus, saved for all eternity, good to go, and I am being saved. I'm in the process of my salvation. The good news is present tense. It's salvation today. It's not just salvation 20 years ago, Christian, when you gave your life to Jesus. And non-believer, it's not just salvation that happens maybe on a good day when I decided to believe, but the next day was tough and so I blew it so I no longer have it. You are being saved. You enter into salvation and it is today. 
Let me ask you believers, can, can you say this? Today I am saved. Well then let's say that together. Today I am saved. Say it one more time. Today I am saved. It's kind of hard to say that without smiling. Now some of you are doing it. Let's try again. Today I am saved. That is mega joy. That is the truth on which we stand. It's the truth that we have received. And not everybody will. Paul says back in chapter one of 1 Corinthians, verse 18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It is the power of God. Salvation is infinite, but it is also immediate which is to say everything changes and then continues to go forward. I am saved today from my sins. I am saved today from my past. I'm saved today from my fears. I'm saved from my worries. I'm saved from my weaknesses, my wounds, my sorrows, even my stupidness. Stupidity, I send you back downstairs. I am saved. And I think if we understood that on more of an ongoing basis, we wouldn't be so glum sometimes. Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, not a past tense hope, not a future hope even, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I do wonder this from time to time, why do some Christians remain glum and bummed and stressed and depressed? Where's the mega joy? This is our reality in Jesus Christ. We should be, we ought to be joyful in it. And if you're lacking that joy, remember the living hope. Jesus rose from the dead. And that promise is to you, Peter said, and to all who are far off, to everyone who receives the gospel, stands on the gospel, recognizes they are saved by the gospel. And then Paul says, fourthly, if you hold fast the word. Okay, I knew there was a caveat. Now I gotta hold fast the word. What does that mean? Well, when I was in high school, I thought it meant I gotta take my Bible with me to school. I gotta hold fast the word. I actually did that. I was a sophomore, and I had a real change of heart in the summer between my freshman and sophomore year. Okay, it was at Christian camp, but hey, it worked. And my sophomore year, I thought, you know, I, I carry a backpack to school and I take my books all the time. I'm gonna take my Bible with me. I don't know that I ever opened my Bible one time at school, but I had it. I had it with me, and, and my thinking at the time was, I wanna have a witness. I wanna have a, you know, if it's there, people are gonna ask. If it's there, I'm gonna see it, and I'm gonna remember, that's who I am. Hold fast the word, but, but it means so much more than just having your Bible nearby. To hold fast the word literally means to keep it by cultivation. Cultivate the word. How do I hold it? Keep it by cultivation. Jesus compared the heart that receives God's word to different soils and how they receive seed. He said in Luke chapter eight, verse 15, the good soil well, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart. They're open, they're willing to say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll reason with you. I'll look at it, I'll think about it. And they're the ones who then hold it fast 
and bear fruit with perseverance. So in the same way a seed goes into good soil, what happens? It bears fruit. What happens to that fruit? It is held on the plant, on the vine that is held rooted into the ground. That's the picture that Paul is drawing when he says you gotta hold the word fast. James 1.21, James says, in humility, receive the word implanted. Get it in, welcome it in, receive it in. The word implanted, which is able to save your souls. In other words, allow the good news to take root in your life. You may need to repeat it from time to time. You may need to say, Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed on some day other than Easter. That we don't have to wait annually to, to speak that phrase. It's cultivating, you receive it, you stand on it, you nurture it because the gospel is the living hope. And then Paul says, unless you believed in vain, oh, there's the critic. Yeah, but what, what if? What if you believed in vain? What, what if you believed in emptiness? Well, is that possible? Just reasoning this through. Is it possible for someone to quote unquote believe in vain that would be acceptance without reception. That would be a words-only, hollow religion that never germinates into faith. That's getting the card, opening it up, reading it, and tossing it to the pile, and never looking again, and not being impacted whatsoever by the sentiment that's inside, but this is so much more than sentiment. This is not sentimental. The story is emotional. Yes, it is. It's moving, it's powerful, it's touching, it's awesome. From crucifixion through resurrection, what an amazing story to read over and even to rehearse. But it's not about sentimentality. It is about the truth. The truth that brings the mega joy. And Jesus said in Matthew 13, verse 20, the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, and yet he has no firm root in himself. It's temporary. When affliction or persecution arises, especially because of the word, well, immediately he falls away. I've seen that happen. And, and, I, and I've seen some Christians, and I hope it's none of you, but I've seen some believers hanging on by a thread because the entire focus of life is on all the bad that's taking place and all the negativity in the world and all the terror and all the horror and all the sorrow, and that's the focus. And if you spin around, you are destroying your root. The word implanted. You know what's interesting? When James said, receive the word implanted, he says, which is able to save your soul. What does that mean? That means it gets into your head. That means you don't spend your life working out scenarios of the worst possible case scenario, that which could go wrong, or, or how am I gonna figure this out? I gotta find a way through this. The word implanted will save your soul, filling it instead with hope. Did you once receive the word with joy only to be discouraged by tragedy, by hard times, by difficulty? Maybe you heard the word and it intrigued you, even excited you a little bit, 
But then you went home and there were bills to pay and there were children to raise and worry and care began to choke out that wonderful truth that you once heard. Matthew 13, 22, Jesus said, the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the person who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. The seed's in there, but it can't grow. It can't be nurtured or cultivated because the world gets in the way. There are a lot of believers like that. They believe. But man, I got stuff I gotta get done. Listen, if that happens to be you, any of those negative situations, man, open the card because it's still good news. It is still good news and it can break those strongholds in our lives and it can break those fears and those depressions. It can break the hold of sin that would try to keep you from getting to the word of God. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance, protos, it's protoi in the Greek. First place, most important thing I ever told you, will ever tell you, this is it. Don't forget this. This is the first thing I told you. What I also received. So Paul's not speaking out of head knowledge. This is right out of his heart. I received this too. Paul, who himself was a rabid anti-Christian, who persecuted the church, who oversaw murders of Christians, who hauled people off to jail, who hated Christians until he met Christ, which radically changed his life. I received it too, he says. And I delivered it to you of first importance. And here it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that is the message. That is the gospel right there. There are two tenets of that that make the message so good. And the first one is I delivered to you, first of all, Jesus died according to the scriptures. So yes, he did die. This was not a fluke. This was not uh, you know, something that was feigned. It happened. It was witnessed. People saw him draw his last breath. People saw the spear go into his side as it was tested out. Is he alive or dead? Remember the story we're, we're talking about, and this is out of John uh, chapter 19. We talked about on Friday night, how they had to go and break the legs of the criminals to break their legs because as they hang on the cross, you could push up and breathe and then you go down and then you couldn't breathe but at least your feet wouldn't be in horrible pain. But then you couldn't breathe so you'd push up against that nail and you'd breathe again and they would do this on a Roman cross for three to four days, suffering. So they go because it's, it's the eve of the, of the great Sabbath and they need, it's Passover Eve, they need to get this done and they go to break their legs because if you break the legs of the crucified, they will die very quickly, within moments, because they just sink down and asphyxiate and they're done. So they went to the first criminal, bang, broke his legs, down he goes and he dies. They go to the second criminal, bang, break his legs, down he goes and he dies. They go to Jesus, I think he's dead. And one of the centurions goes, well, let's make sure and takes a spear and jams it right up into Jesus' side. And the Bible tells us very clearly what was witnessed that day. Blood and water poured out. Not blood, blood and water, proof of death. I mean, there's a death certificate for Jesus right there. And Paul says, you need to understand, he died. He was dead, according to the scriptures. 
Why? To deal with sin. To take, remember what I said? Sin yields our greatest sorrow, which is death. That's the end result of all sin. God doesn't want that for you, doesn't want that for me. He wants life. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And the spear went in, proof of death. Water and blood pouring out together indicates a heart that has erupted, that's just burst, which we think is physiologically how Jesus died. Spiritually, how did he die? He said, I'm done. He said, it's finished. But his heart burst and Jesus was dead My friends, he died to deal with sin. Otherwise, his death would be a complete waste of a perfect man. John 14, 6, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You gotta get to perfection to get to the Father. The way to the Father is through perfection and the only perfect man is Jesus. And he died to death. He died, sin died with him that day for all who would receive him. Romans 8, verse one, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's good news. So even the first part of the gospel, I delivered you of first importance. Jesus died according to the scriptures. That is good news, but it gets better. He was buried and raised on the third day, Paul says, again, according to the scriptures. And that's the gospel. Not just a story, it's a truth that Jesus died, was buried, and was raised on the third day. Believers, remember the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is our good news, that's our message. I I would love to share Jesus with people. I just don't know what I would tell them. I don't have all that Bible knowledge and I don't know any Greek or Hebrew. How am I supposed to gospelize or evangelize? I just can't do that. So many believers keep their mouths shut. Listen, do you know the gospel? If you know the gospel, that's the message. Jesus died for you, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day that you might have life. That's it. If you know that, you can evangelize anyone. Whether or not they receive it is between them and the Lord. But you need to understand, there is power in the gospel. And I know this is weird to us, but very simply sharing that, there is great spiritual power there that shakes all the disbelief of humanity. If you will just share the gospel, let, let the Holy Spirit then work on that. You just share the gospel. And if someone comes back around and goes, okay, death, burial, resurrection, fine, but but what about evolution? I don't know a whole lot about evolution, but I know Jesus. The gospel is that he died for you because he loves you so much and he rose again so that death will no longer have hold on you. That's it. Okay, yeah, but but, but what about homosexuality in the the Bible? You know, I'm not even, we could talk about that, but let's talk about the gospel. Let's keep our focus on the gospel. The good news is our message. And so Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, he said to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. I told you the good news, Tim. Preach it. Let them hear it. Christian brother or sister, 
Is it your gospel? I love how Paul says that. It's my gospel. Is it yours? Is the good news your good news? Because if you're struggling in this life, I would question you. Do you really know the good news? Have you really embraced it? Have you received it? Do you stand on it? Is this yours? Do you hold to it? Have you translated the good news of Jesus Christ into your life? That's a question for a believer. A question for a non-believer would be, are you so certain in your unbelief in Jesus that you would risk eternity on it? Keep it real with me for a minute. Well, I don't believe in Jesus. Well, are you so certain that this is not true? That you'd take that kind of a mega risk? I would say, hold on a second. Come, let us reason together. I don't even say that to to try to manipulate or to upset someone, but I do hope that stirs somebody up. Am I so sure that I don't believe this? Am I so sure that this didn't happen? Do I really know that I know? Listen, life is not gonna work for you any other way. You can look down any path you want, and people do. You can chase any kind of dream you want. It's still gonna end in death, and I'm not just talking about physical death, I'm talking about eternal death. That's the end result of sin. You can choose that. I don't know why anybody would. Well, because I just don't believe it. Are you sure? Have you really thought about it? Because what Paul claims here is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. What scriptures? Well, at the time, there was no New Testament. It was the Hebrew Scriptures. Paul appeals to the Hebrew Scriptures, which at that point had been around some 1,500 years, and says, read it, and then hear the story again. Read it and listen to our testimony of it, because it's already been proclaimed. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was already proclaimed over 1,500 years in the Hebrew Bible. Really? How do you know? I'll give you some examples. Matthew 27, verse 45, tells us from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the whole land until the ninth hour, so from noon to three o'clock. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is that written in the Hebrew scriptures? Yes, it is. Psalm 22, verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Why would David write that a thousand years before Jesus re-spoke it? Why is Jesus quoting scripture on on the cross, which by the way, he does a couple of times. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does Jesus say that? I'll tell you why. Because it was the practice of rabbis when they're about to teach from a certain scroll to repeat the first verse of that scroll. So the students would know where to turn. They didn't have chapter and verse. If, if we had, if our Bibles had no chapter and verse this morning, what I would do is I'd stand up and say, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I also preach to you. And good students would go, oh, he's going to 1 Corinthians 15. You read the first line, and that's where we're gonna be teaching from this morning. Jesus is on the cross, and he speaks these words. This is what is happening right now. Now, the reason that is so remarkably significant 
is that if you continue to read Psalm 22, written by David a thousand years before, long about verse seven, you would read this. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. So David says, this is what people are gonna say to the one who says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So it's one thing to say, well, Jesus knew Psalm 22. So he quoted Psalm 22 because he knew it. Yeah, but you couldn't make the enemies of Jesus quote the same book. And Psalm 22, uh, verse seven says this. Well, then Matthew 27, verse 41 says, in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. That's exactly what David wrote. How'd David know? And why would the enemies of Jesus now be quoting Psalm 22 as they sneered at Jesus? Because it was prophetically spoken ahead of time, Christ died according to the scriptures. Psalm 22, verse 16, continuing reading right down Psalm 22. We've looked at this. Psalm 22, we call the Psalm of the Cross because it reads like an historical account of the crucifixion. Psalm 22, 16, dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. Now, you need to understand, when, when a Hebrew says dogs, it's not affectionate. This is not like Huck. Huck is, is the sweetest, sweetest dog. And we were, we were over at the Gloucester's house last night. See, I, 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 can't, I can't not talk about you, Hank. I'm sorry, I mean, you know? But we're over there, and I'm actually not, not talking about you or Trish. I'm talking about their dog. This is an adorable dog. What, he's, he's a poodle slash, he's a what? He's a golden doodle. I know, that's just a weird name right there. A golden doodle. I, I think I ate those when I was a kid. Stirred him up. <laughs> Macaroni. Anyway, um, so he's a golden doodle. Big dog, beautiful dog, sweet dog. Now, now, you need to understand, Cheryl and I are dog people. We love dogs. Any dog, you know, unless they bite my head off, that's not good. But I love big dogs, little dogs, any kind of dogs. I love dogs. Well, Huck was all over me last night. It was good. I need to make that clear. I'm not complaining. This is a happy dog. This dog loves people. This is not the kind of dog that is talked about in Psalm 22. Because to the Jewish mindset, dogs have surrounded me. Dogs were the mongrels of society. To say dog, that's a, that's a put down. You didn't want someone to call you a dog, you know? I, I guess it would be similar to, you know, if you're, if you're in high school and a girl walks by and you, and you say, wow, she's really a dog. That would not be good, <laughs> right? That's the concept. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look at me, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And that is exactly what happened and the dying of Jesus as the scriptures said. He died according to the scriptures. We see this happen. David wrote that. By the way, they pierced my hands and feet. You Bible students know, David wrote that 300 years before the Persians invented crucifixion. It wasn't even a thing. That would be very weird poetic writing for the psalmist to say, they pierced my hands and my feet. What are you talking about, David? I don't know. It just sounded good. I, 
I don't know, I just wrote it. Spirit inspired him to because that's what would happen on the cross. Rome later perfected crucifixion, by the way. The Persians invented it. Rome perfected it all long after David wrote, they pierced my hands and my feet. That's, that's compelling. Reason with me. The scripture said this would happen. And in fact, in Isaiah the prophet, so Isaiah wrote around 700, 750 years before Jesus. And he said in Isaiah 53, verse five, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. And Jesus was scourged within an inch of his life. The 39 lashes minus one, or the 49, the 40 lashes minus one. The 39 lashes of that flagellum, bone, metal, chunks of glass, woven into leather strips that was dragged across the back. By the time, he should have died during the scourging. By the time he got to the cross, his back was a complete mess. The same back that would be up against the wooden cross. I mean, the, the physical pain alone in the crucifixion is unbelievable. What Jesus endured. And Isaiah prophesied of it that his back would be like hamburger, that his hands and his feet also, he was pierced through, he says. In verse six, he says, all of us like sheep have gone stray. Each of us have turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity, the sin of us all to fall on him. That's good news. That's the dealing with sin. Reason this through with me. And Isaiah, by the way, also prophesied about crucifixion before the Persians invented it. This was understood. This was known in the Bible. Verse eight of Isaiah 53 says, by oppression and judgment, he's taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? Who even was thinking about this? It's like beyond them. They didn't know what was taking place, what was happening around them. Verse nine says, his grave was assigned with wicked men. Why? Well, because he was crucified between two criminals. Should have been dumped in a pauper's grave like criminals would be taken off a cross. But if you continue in the story, you know he wasn't. In fact, Isaiah prophesied, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And so Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, and Nicodemus took Jesus off the cross and laid his body in the tomb. He died and was buried according to the scriptures. He was with a rich man in his death. Now again, if you've studied these things, this isn't new information, but it is rock solid that as Paul reasons with Corinth, he could with us this morning saying, this is all according to plan. He died and he was buried according to plan, exactly as the Hebrew prophets said. And there are many other prophecies that point to this and describe this. And then Paul adds, and he was raised on the third day. How, Paul? According to the scriptures. The Hebrew scriptures? We still there? Listen, his death certified our forgiveness. His burial certified his death. His resurrection certifies my life. And I begin to understand that's all happened according to the scriptures so that when we finally get to 
and he was raised on the third day. According to the scriptures, Paul was making a case. Just look at the scriptures. What did they say and what happened? And how could they possibly have known unless this be the true word of God? And that is so compelling as you think it through. You look back to the Hebrew scriptures and you'll recognize Genesis chapter 22, verses two through four. Actually, the whole chapter is amazing. But Abraham and Isaac came to Mount Moriah. The story's out, right? His only son. Some of you have seen the movie that just came out. I gotta see this. I heard it's great. But it's all about Abraham and Isaac. And they came to Mount Moriah. Guess when? On the third day. So when Paul says he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, you look back at the Hebrew scriptures and go, okay, so in Genesis 22, a father goes to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah where the cross was. And it happened on the third day that they went up the mountain. He was going to sacrifice Isaac and then he didn't. Why? Isaac's a picture of resurrection. Isaac should have been offered that day and he wasn't. But the picture remains a father willing to offer his son who would resurrect on the third day. Leviticus 23, verse 10, tells us the third day after Passover was Reshit, first fruits. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Paul says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. How about Jonah? Book of Jonah? Ah, that's a fish story. Well, yeah, I mean, it is. Doesn't mean it's not true. Jonah chapter one, verse 17 tells us that the fish barfed up Jonah. You weren't there. Spews him out onto the shore on the third day. On the third day. Now for anyone who says, yeah, well, that, that whole story of Jonah is just a fish story. It's not true. Jesus taught it is true. So if you believe Jesus, you gotta believe the story is true. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 39, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And on the third day, he would be raised. Jonah was barfed up. Jesus walked out of the grave. Jesus resurrected. It's in the Hebrew scriptures. How about Hosea chapter six, verse two, where the people are quoted as saying, he will revive us after two, two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. How does Jesus raise up Israel on the third day? He himself was the first man to die, be buried, and raised three days later. First Jew, by the way the first one of Israel who would be raised on the third day. There's more to that prophecy. Some of you know, we're not gonna touch it. But look down at verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, Paul, after much preaching about this, says, but now, well, start in verse 19, because I love how he says this. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So believer, if you hope in Jesus so you can have a good Easter Sunday and head home and have ham. If you go to church because, well, that's kind of what we do. You know, that's our social thing. That's our, our cultural deal. My family's always gone to church, so I go to church. If you have hoped in Jesus for this life only, you are pitiful, Paul says. 
and most to be pitied. What a waste of your life. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits, reshit, the first fruits. On the third day, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And then Paul says, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. And after that, those who are alive at his coming. And then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. It's the gospel. It is the good news. Still need proof? How many witnesses do we need to prove a case true? Case goes to court. How many people need to take the stand for you to realize, okay, enough people have seen this happen that there's no refuting it? Is one enough for you? How about two? See, Torah law says there has to be at least two. Two or three witnesses would be enough according to Jewish law. Well, what about 12? 12 would be good. Let's get an entire jury who now says, yes, we accept this as having happened. Still not enough? How about 500? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse five. Paul says, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. We're not talking about scattered times even. 500 people all gathered in one place saw Jesus after he was supposed to be dead and buried. They saw him resurrected. They saw him alive. And, and what Paul says is really amazing here. He says, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Go ask them. When Paul wrote this to Corinth, he said, all you gotta do is dispatch someone over to Jerusalem, over to Judea, and start asking around. 500 people saw him alive at one time. How many people do you, can we cram into the jury box? How many can we get on the witness stand to say, this happened? And then Paul continues. Then he appeared to James, who wasn't even one of the apostles. James this is the brother, one of the half-brothers of Jesus. And then to all the apostles, Paul says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul's saying, I saw him. I saw him alive. I saw Jesus resurrected. What's the proof of that, Paul? Keith Green was once asked on a, on a talk show, How, what, what is your proof that Jesus is who he said he is? And Keith Green said, he changed my life. What a great answer. The proof is in a life changed. Paul says, he appeared to me also. Yeah, well, I don't believe you, Paul. Okay, well, Paul was a rising star among the Pharisees, a solid leader. He had a great life ahead of him. He was studied, he was well off, he was wealthy. Everything was going right for Paul. And then something happened when he headed to Damascus that day that so radically changed his life, he would spend the rest of his life in shipwrecks and beatings and imprisonments and floggings. And even at one point, I think he actually dies. And then 
God raises him back up and sends him back into the same town that killed him and he continues preaching the gospel. He gave up everything that was going so well so that he could preach this bizarre story about a resurrected Jew out of Judea. Why? Because it changed his life. A life changed is a huge testimony, isn't it? So believers, if you had a nasty life before, if you had a messed up uh, childhood, a messed up existence before, and all your old friends and all your family know it, sometimes people are a little concerned. They, they don't really wanna go back and talk about it because family members will go, don't give me that Christian stuff. We know you. We know you. I grew up with you. I know about your drinking. I know about your cussing. I know about your sleeping around. I know all the stuff that you did. And your response is, yeah, but he changed me. That's not me anymore. I'm different now. Oh, come on. No, you're not. Yeah, no, I am. Watch me. Just watch me. Paul says the witnesses and all of the apostles, every apostle, including Paul, would be martyred for their faith. The only possible exception was John, who they tried to martyr and it just didn't take. They tried to boil him in oil. He spent the rest of his life with a great tan. They couldn't kill him. But they were all martyred. They were, Paul spent, you know, as an old man, was on a rock in the middle of the Aegean Sea when he received the revelation of Jesus Christ that we have in our Bibles. These are lives changed. This is convincing proof. Acts chapter one, verse three says, to these also, that's his disciples, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days. This was not a flash in the pan on Easter Sunday. So you understand, even in history, you can't say, well, it just happened on one day and maybe it really didn't happen. Maybe that night they all drank a little too much and imagined it. And it really, he appeared to them over 40 days at different times to different people, 500 at once. I mean, the, the, the evidence for this that remains since the first century is absolutely stunning. And by the way, there are no first century historical documents or records that are written to refute the claim of the resurrection of Jesus. You'd think there'd be one or two. You'd think somebody would stand up and go, we have proof, here's his body. We have proof. Yeah, they claimed that, but we went back to the grave. We rolled back the stone. The body was there just like we said, just where it was put. Nobody wrote that. I, some of you know this before. I, I told you that, that Roni, our, our Israeli tour guide, believes that Jesus walked on water. Roni believes that Jesus did all the miracles that the Bible says he did. Roni believes that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I love my friend Roni. Roni is not a Christian. He says, I'm a secular Jew. And I asked him about this. Roni, how, but, you, but you believe it? I said, do you really believe these things happened? Oh, yes, I, of course I believe this. So matter of fact. And I asked him, well, well then why, why aren't you a Christian? He said, well, I know it. And he said, Rick, when it gets from my head to my heart, I'll tell you first. He understands how it works. It's gotta get from here to here. It's not just received, it's, it's believed. And so 
Roni, but he, he said that. I, I asked him, okay, well, then why do you believe all these things? He says, because I'm an archaeologist and I'm an historian. And he said, there is not one single refutation of the miracles of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And as an historian, there would have to be at least one. Nobody, well, people have said it didn't happen like 200 years ago. People have tried to refute it within the last couple hundred years, but in the first century and the first several hundred years, nobody had any proof whatsoever that it didn't happen. All there is, historically speaking, is proof that it did happen. Come, let us reason together. This is mega joy. This is the gospel, prophesied, certified, verified. Satisfied? <laughs> Verse three again, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance. There is no other message more important to the follower of Jesus than the gospel. This is it. First place, first rank, because the gospel is the message of mega gladness. It is good tidings of great joy. Do you believe it? Have you received it? The Corinthian Christians had, sort of. Part of the problem that Paul was dealing with here is that they had accepted it theologically. The teaching seemed to work. It seemed to fit, but apparently many of the Corinthians had not accepted it personally from head to heart because the life wasn't quite changed yet. There were some going back to old ways, some doing old things, and Paul was saying, look, you're missing the point. This is about you and Jesus. Absolutely true, 100% verified in the Hebrew scriptures, lived out historically, it's all true, but what have you done with it? See, in Corinth, sin was still embraced. In the Corinthian church, sin was still in play, it was still running rampant, it was causing hurt and snubs and division. How about us? Is sin still in play in our fellowship? In the church today, is sin still in play? How about in your life? This morning, all I can tell you to do is open the card. Open the card, believe it, receive the message, take it with you, stand on it, cultivate it, celebrate it. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is forever, and that is here and now today. Jesus said, I'm not gonna leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, he said in John 14, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. And that's the message for us today. Believers, take the gospel of his resurrection joyfully, wholeheartedly. It ought to affect even our countenance as we think about the gospel. Believers, take it joyfully. Non-believers, Please take the gospel seriously. Don't just dismiss it. Sin can't save you. It can only destroy you. Salvation by Jesus comes of this gospel message. 
Psalm 16, verse 10 says, you will not abandon my soul to shield, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Good news of mega joy. Do you want it? Then come and get it. The joy is yours for the taking. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the message of the gospel, for the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, for what it truly means. And I pray, Father, we would receive the truth of it. Lord Jesus, I'm asking by the power of your spirit for an infusion of joy among your people in this world. Those who ought to be the most joyful people alive on the planet because of where we're going, because of the truth of where you've been and what you've done. Help us to live with that joyful hope. A joy, Father, that is not based on our circumstances, it is based on the truth. And Father, for the non-believer, I pray that the message of the gospel would be heard and considered, processed, reasoned, and accepted. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 